Hello and welcome to Innovation Matters. It's the podcast brought to you by Lux Research that pokes holes in sustainable innovation the way that bird poop pokes holes in the <laughs> sheet metal body of a Cybertruck. <laughs> oh, man. I, I got to say, I saw that. I was like, this is the most Anthony Schiavo story ever. It's, uh, you know coatings and corrosion and and elon musk yeah. is really extremely relevant to your interest my two interests my two interests elon musk <laughs> failing and the development of better test methods for long-term corrosion protection are, are yeah really uniting these these worlds of interest it is funny though i mean like like so for the listener basically tesla put out a bulletin that was like you need to clean like bird poop or anything else like off your cyber truck as soon as possible because if you leave it on there it will basically like corrode directly through the the sheet metal because the Cybertruck is of course using basically bare sheet metal for its body bare stainless steel as i understand it not even bare aluminum you know this is apparently so that you can stop bullets with it question mark or do any of these other <laughs> these or other sort of hammer. features also questionably or a ball bean hammer yeah um, so yeah, they use cold rolled uh, stainless steel. That's correct. Cold rolled stainless steel, which is sort of famously not that great at corrosion protection. It's it's stainless steel, not, not you know impervious to rust steel. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, it is kind of a, a, a interesting because the, the something about the, the Cybertruck, the idea of like, oh, what if we just threw out everything that you know we thought you knew about what a car should look like and and kind of you know questioned everything. There's this, there's this TV commercial. I think it's a Nissan commercial that they keep showing where some actress is like, you know, automotive designers have the power to take this piece of clay and make a car that looks like anything. So why don't they? You know, and then, of course, it's a commercial for a Nissan that, like, basically looks the same as most other cars do. And, like, the Tesla actually, like, took that seriously, which I sort of respect on 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 some level. Uh, but this is one of the reasons why people usually don't do that because it's like, you know, th- there's all sorts, you know, there's all sorts of manufacturing issues with the Cybertruck because, you know, people are used to making cars in a certain way and they have all of the equipment and everything, you know, down to a science for that. And if you're going to change change it all, it's going to be really hard. <laughs> it's not just that people are used to making cars a certain way. The decisions that get made, like all cars basically look the same now, which is like this sort of complaint about cars. And I think that's true. And like, I definitely respect the hearkening back to sort of previous era of of automotive design when things actually look interesting or cool but like they don't just look that way because the industry is conservative and no one wants to take a risk although that is true they look that way because there's like engineering like value reasons for them to look that way like they don't have hard aerodynamics like they don't have hard edges because those are like more difficult to like manufacture with sheet metal they don't use like bare stainless steel because (laughs) When a bird poops on yeah. it, it rusts instantly. Like these are all things that, you know, like in the sixties, you know, your car used to last like three, four years, right? Um, like people forget this in like the this very early era of car manufacturing. It was like they're almost like disposable objects, right? Yeah, it was because a lot better by the sixties, but yeah. I mean in the, I guess in like the late forties, early fifties, cars would last like three to four years, right? But like we've we've engineered these things to last like twenty years now, right? And it's like that's that accumulation of decisions forces the cars to sort of look the same. If you're gonna not have the cars look like that, you're gonna have problems. It's just how it works. Could have put a clear coat on it, though. I think 
not sure that could have put it there. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Like the various auto uh, sales folks at you know Sherwin Williams, 3M, <laughs> the various chemical companies were all like getting alerts on their phones, being woken up at midnight with like a helicopter outside their door or whatever, you know, <laughs> by their various CEOs. Like, we need to get our top men on this immediately and yeah. solve this problem. I mean, when they launched the Cybertruck design, uh, I think I was doing my bachelor's at the time. And then we were all talking about this because we were just about to go to a fluid dynamics class. And we were like, can you please tell me how stacking up vertical plane surfaces together is going to be aerodynamically sound and have the least coefficient of drag? Uh, even before the stainless steel part. Uh, I, I mean, it, it makes the Cybertruck look distinct because there is no other design that way. But I was like... It looks know, ugly, though. <laughs> like, it doesn't uh, look Beauty good. lies in the in the eyes of the beholder, right? I mean... No, it's not. I'm, I'm once again issuing the correct opinion on something here. The thing I've been doing all week. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm out here saying the Cybertruck's ugly. Like, it just doesn't... It's not aesthetically congruent with any of its surroundings ever so it just <laughs> always looks like you're larping like unless you're like driving it through the desert like you just and then it i would assume rusts immediately when you do that as well because of all like take it out to like the salt flats or whatever to to see the top speed and you just are literally driving back a big pile of iron uh, iron oxide but yeah i mean it just never looks good because it's never like like when you're driving it through the pickup line at like Chick-fil-A or whatever, like you look like a dork. I'm sorry. But I mean, as an engineer, I would say it looks cool. You know, it looks fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued as an engineer to know how they came up with that design and how they, you know, even arrived at the fact that that's going to have the least coefficient of drag, you know, even before the stainless steel. I think like, as an engineer, it looks cool pretty much, pretty much does yeah, exactly. the design philosophy of the Cybertruck for good or for ill. Yeah. I mean, I it's, it's like a... a eight-year-old child's drawing of a car brought to life yeah anyway we're here to talk about the news and there's although it seems hard to imagine more news than whatever's going on with elon musk um <laughs> any given week so i think there's a couple stories we wanted to flag up mike i'll kick it over to you you had had mentioned wanting to highlight this story on um meat and possibly sell free meat or as you might call it artificial meat, imitation meat? <laughs> As you might be legally obligated to call it if you are in Arizona or Texas. Um, yeah, so this is, you know, we, you know, it's been a big year for cell-based meat sort of on the regulatory front for, for approvals and things last year. And that, that was actually one of the predictions that we, that we, we made for 2023. And I think it was a, overall, it was a good one. You know, we were thinking about you know, as we saw in the U.S. and and other places, cell-based meat products actually getting regulatory approval to be manufactured and sold. Um, but over the course of the year, there's also been um, a, a bit of a backlash to that. Also, uh, in where you've you've been having various uh, jurisdictions passing laws, either I mean, in some cases, like in Italy, actually. Uh, attempting to ban the the sale, creation and sale of cell-based meat products, not for like, it's not healthy reasons, but like, this is bad for our, um, you know, this is bad for our domestic farmers and, and, and meat industry. Um, and similarly, so you've been seeing that most 
it previously in like Texas and Florida and Nebraska, and then most recently last week in, in Arizona, these laws that are uh, not banning cell-based meat, but requiring it basically it to be labeled as artificial or cultivated or saying like you can't actually use the word meat to describe it. And um, it is, it does appear to be driven really by, by concern and backlash from the traditional, you know, animal-based meat product industry, a bit like we, you know, kind of saw a similar backlash against some alternative, you know, dairy in, in the form of like, you know, the Senator from Wisconsin trying to pass a bill preventing people from calling almond milk milk, right? Because <laughs> you know, they wanted to yeah. protect what, dairy. What I think is interesting is this is this is not really an aberration from like the regular process of figuring this stuff out. Like I was listening to this other podcast. I know it's true. I, I listen to podcasts other than Innovation Matters. Um, really great podcast called Maintenance Phase, which is about like health and health policy and stuff like that. And they did a whole episode on the creation of the food pyramid and the various sort of flavors of the food pyramid. And like the whole process of creating the food pyramid was like extremely mediated by all these different lobbies, right? And like the meat lobby and the various like, you know, grain lobbies and all these different things. And it's like, you know, this whole set of public opinions or public uh, policy on like what do we call what do we label what do we how do we sort of do this interaction of like the food and the labeling of it is all really heavily mediated by yeah by like these industry groups so it's it's not really surprising to see it in this way but it's definitely funny to see it play out like over something that's still like so early stage yeah it's definitely very very preemptive and but, but yeah it's it's a uh... That's that was one of what was interesting to me about it to me is that, that it's not just, you know, the regulatory approval, which I think had been the, um, you know, one of the the biggest regulatory concerns around around these products is can you get, get approval to to uh, to act on them or to, you know, actually produce and sell them um, that the sort of existing industry hasn't necessarily and probably they've tried behind the scenes, you know, perhaps to to interfere with with that process. But uh you know, coming about it from the, uh, from the, the labeling and, and, and marketing and, and description of these, uh, these type of products, uh, probably, cause I think that's probably a little bit easier to influence, you know, the Texas state legislature, or Arizona state legislature to pass one of these, these kind of bills than it is to, uh, uh, necessarily to influence the, the people at the FDA who are making those approval decisions. Yeah. I find it extremely hilarious that they're fighting about cell-based meat versus real meat as a vegetarian because it's still meat at the end of the day. Is um, it? The, I mean, so as a vegetarian, I mean, I think most people have the stance, right? Would you, would you eat cell-based meat? Like if the, there was no animal killed in the making of this, I guess it depends on the reason nah. you're vegetarian <laughs> maybe, but. Nah, 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 I don't know. I mean, it's it's beyond that a little bit as well because there are also religious reasons as to why I was raised vegetarian. Um, but you know, since my young age, I've never liked the smell of cooking meat, so that always plays a part. Whether it's cell based meat or otherwise, I think you know that smell is never going to change, right? It's still meat. Yeah, if they do it right, it'll smell like real meat. <laughs> of course, yeah, the better the better they do it, the less uh, the less desirable it will be for you. Exactly. But uh, I mean, 
at the end of the day if if it has similar characteristics to the meat i mean i mean you can sh- sure you can call it imitation meat but at the end it's still meat i really don't see the point in making that change i think it's just down to the fact that the conventional industry is just conservative similar to other industries and they just don't want these things to change you know they don't want to be priced out of the market yeah it's interesting because i mean the the traditional i would say sort of industrial players right the actual like meat processing packaging companies like the tyson foods and cargills and and things of the world they're all doing stuff in 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 cell-based meat and plant-based meat and investing in this and experimenting in it and partnering with startups and like there's a lot of that type of activity from those sort of industry players. I think this kind of backlash is driven much more by by the farmers, um, you know, who, you know, if, if you're Cargill and your business is in like, you know, packaging and selling chicken or whatever, like, and then you can you can definitely uh, pivot to, to sell based meat if that becomes what's desirable for for consumers. But if you're, you know, an actual chicken farmer or pork farmer, then then it's uh that's that's a lot harder so i think those are the, the people who are uh the stakeholders who are driving more of this resistance here and i don't think it's it's ultimately probably going to be i mean it's sort of the least of the worries in a, in a way for the for this this space right now there's still a lot of work to do in terms of making these you know these products successful and scalable and addressing the taste and texture and other issues to make them, you know, for, for, for the, the quality and experience and, and all of that. And, and of course, getting the actual, you know, official regulatory approvals, like we said. Uh, so I don't know how consequential any of this is going to be for that, but I, I do wonder if, you know, uh, it, it, if it gets to the point where it could affect the, uh, those, those bigger industrial players, like if, if, farmers you know it, it, like if, if if tyson or whomever like doesn't want to to tick off their suppliers the farmers then thing that they're they're buying from then i think their you know relationships with are pretty important um by you know making these venture investments and in, in cell-based meat i mean it's kind of like the, the classic disruptive innovation story right there's always stakeholders within your when you're trying to do something different and disrupt potentially disruptive there's always a lot of stakeholders within your organization or within your you know, your network or your, your ecosystem or your supply chain that are, that don't want you to do it and are coming up with reasons for you not to. So that might be the only effect I, I, I could see of it. If, if it does, if the backlash gets strong enough, if it does prompt some of these, you know, these bigger players to, to, to pull back on it a bit. Do you see any uh, maybe sort of threat from alternative proteins in terms of like plant-based meat, like vegan stuff? I've had friends ask me, okay, you've had uh, vegan meatballs. How do they taste? And I'm like, they taste good, but I don't know if they're like tasting like actual meat, you know? So because you also eat meat, I'm curious to hear your, both of your thoughts on if you have tried vegan meat versus cell-based meat and, and regular meat, and do you find big differences in texture, taste? Yeah, I mean, I I haven't tried cell-based meat. I haven't had the, the chance to do that. I don't think too many, and I don't think too many people have at, at this point, but um. Yeah, I mean the plant-based products, the Beyond Meat and 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 stuff like that. It's not bad. Uh, it definitely doesn't taste quite like a real, um, you know, a real burger or something something like that. But I like you know like use it in in chili and and things like that. And it it's not uh, in in that kind of context. You don't you don't notice the difference sort of so much. Yeah, I think it's it's really a textural thing. 
yeah, some of these laws, though, like like the Texas one, does also ad- address the, um, you know, does apply to plant based also, and kind of seeks to under- address the issue of unclear labeling on products that look or taste similar to traditional animal prized, animal derived products. They they say so they're they're definitely going after like the Beyond Meat and stuff as well. It's not just Texas going nuclear. Um, in more ways than one this week. That's a a little professional podcasting transition for y'all. It's also uh, China, right? We had a pretty interesting story card that you flagged up about a extremely questionable innovation from from China. (laughs) Talk to me. Yeah, so uh, I think it's about two, three weeks ago where this uh, Chinese company, Betavolt, they have announced a nuclear battery so for those who don't know what a nuclear battery is, uh, it's just a battery that houses radioactive isotopes that are decaying. And when they're decaying, they release heat. And this heat, of course, can be converted to electricity or you can use you know, heat to heat and, and, and other applications. Um, and so if you have these isotopes that are contained in a very strong, you know, protected uh, enclosure, if you will, and you basically let them run, you know, forever if they have a very high half-life you know you have perpetual power of sorts because it's never going to decay if it has a very long half-life and so they claim they have developed this very small nuclear battery uh, that they want to target for charging cell phones and you know smart devices and other things so right now their device i think can charge uh, at three volts and 33 milliamps so it's like 100 milliwatts of power something like that Uh, very very low amount of power they use nickel isotopes, uh, strontium isotopes, and things like that that decay to become non-radioactive elements like nickel. This isotope of this specific isotope of nickel becomes copper, a non-radioactive copper, and they store that copper inside. Um, and so they claim they're going to get their first one watt uh, device by 2025, and they're going to scale this up, and they're going to first target, of course, the consumer market where they want to charge portable devices. <sighs> I don't know what to say about this, man. Like, so many of the problems with nuclear are problems of perception, right? And mm-hmm. the perception angle of I'm going to put a little nuclear battery in my cell mm-hmm. phone or whatever is like, it's tough. You know, it's tough. Especially just like someone will drive a nail through it. Like, you know, someone <laughs> is going to put, like, this is just like how. There are so many stories like the Guyana incident, you know, you can take a lot of precautions with these things and still end up if you have nuclear material, radioactive material that is out in the world, not in a nuclear power plant or under pretty tight controls, like it ends up getting spread around. And it just seems like not worth the risk. Like what? what's the... What's the upside here exactly? Like your iPhone doesn't have to get recharged. Like, am I too much of a skeptic? What's up? Yeah, I mean, I think um, apart from the perceptual issues, I'm I'm just not sure the the value proposition makes. I mean, I think there is a nuclear battery is is an interesting technology and there there are use cases for it. But the use case for a battery that, that can go 50 years without having to be recharged is not your cell phone for a wide, even apart from the nuclear stuff, for, for a wide variety of reasons, right? I mean, one, your cell phone isn't going to last, the rest of the cell phone isn't going to last 50 years. Anyway, um, uh, and 
you know, you can charge the cell phone. It's not that that hard to do. You know, something that can go longer between charges is obviously better, but like, you know, most people at a minimum can easily charge their cell phones at night when they're sleeping or, or whatever anyway. So uh, a battery that I think is going to be a lot more expensive up front than traditional uh, lithium ion, you know, for the sake of not having to be recharged, it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense for a cell phone. And I think, I imagine that's, probably not what they're going for not the really the market they're going for anyway like that's just a little bit like oh this could power a cell phone for 50 years is sort of a you know it's more a bit of bit of marketing to get attention for it i mean the applications that are that this sort of thing is relevant for are you know space and other remote locations where you might need to put sensors or or things to, or transmitters or and whatnot that would need need power for a long period of time and aren't easy to recharge or medical implants, medical devices, though you're obviously going to get into the, um, you know, but if this goes into a pacemaker, right, you're going to have some of those perceptual concerns about, about nuclear, but, but probably like, (laughs) you don't have to worry about people driving a nail through it uh, or something like that. Or if, if somebody, the nail gets driven through it, you've got, you've got got problems with a few isotopes. Yeah. To uh, also, you know, maybe, uh, Simmer the fears Anthony has over punctures, uh, and I don't know if this is a callback, but it's apparently bulletproof. Oh, uh, similar to the Cybertruck. But can it withstand uh, bird poop? Yeah, oh. that's do not <laughs> do, do not, not put this in your Cybertruck. <laughs> do not recharge your Cybertruck with a nuclear battery. Uh, that's the official uh, iteration virus perspective. All right. We are very glad to now have um, uh, our guest here, Safia Qureshi, who is the founder and CEO of Club Zero, which is, um, well, maybe Safia, I'll go ahead and let you let you tell us about it, you know, the, the, what uh, what Club Zero does and, you know, kind of how you got into this. What, what was the backstory? What led you to, to, to get started in this uh, in this area? Thanks, Mike. So um, I'm, I should start by saying I'm, uh, I'm not a technologist. I'm a designer and architect uh, by background and training. So um, my life really started on the, on the side of um, designing for large buildings, schools, really exciting large spaces with complex things that went inside them. And um, I started to get um, an itch for doing something that was bigger um, that would create more environmental impact for, you know, a larger community of people than just those folks who might be using, um, you know, a library that I designed or something. So um, I started to look at the um, the plastics crisis and I thought, wow, there must be a better way to consume. I mean, why are we using things for 20 seconds um, in some instances? And is this, um, is this purely happening because, you know, designers have failed us somewhere along the way? Um, is this purely happening because, you know, someone um, decided that this was the way and no one's challenged them? Um, and could we develop a system whereby instead of designing things for single use, um, we had better reusable, durable products that we actually returned that could be serviced. And I was focusing really on the food and beverage um, takeaway space. This is in 2015, by the way, I should say, a long time ago, and I 
came up with this idea. And, um, and of course, conceptually, when you come up with an idea, you can do two things. You can either develop them into a nice, funny design and interactive, you know, um, way to test it at small scale and put it in front of a few people and keep it as, you know, like a project, uh, which is what we did initially. Or you can sort of uh, think about it in a more systematic way and say, oh, could I take this into the real world? And could I engineer a way where this becomes a new norm? Um, which is an incredibly challenging area, and it's very terrifying. And I thought, let's go down that route. Let's try that. Um, <laughs> um, and unbeknown to me, of course, that entailed a complete restructure of the way that I process things and understood things coming from an entrepreneur uh, family. I'd never really you know, set up my own business before, per se, besides the design studio, which is a service business, and it's quite predictable in how it works. Um, and, you know, going from thinking like an architect and running essentially a service to thinking like an entrepreneur and building a, um, a returnable packaging company, which is what Club Zero is, um, that now services food delivery platforms like Just Eat, um, has worked and built consortium brands with Starbucks and McDonald's and launched here in the UK and the US. Um, that has operated with contract catering companies and launched into, you know, university campuses like UCL, Stanford University, um, and large office um, sites such as Visa and Cushman and Wakefield, etc. So the the transition from being um, an architect to an entrepreneur has been really quite interesting. And building a returnable packaging company, which is what we are now doing, um, has been has been very very fascinating for me on all levels. So for returnable pack, you know, it's it's an area as I've mentioned to you, right? That we we've had some interest in and been following it at, at Lux, um, you know, and it's it's an idea that's been around a bit, and some companies even have reusability targets and things. But you know, sort of in in your view, what are the the real uh, impediments that need to be tackled for it to effectively scale, right? And what are you, what are you targeting at, at Club Zero to try to to try to make that happen? Yeah, so the, the main impediments for reusable packaging today is to ensure that we, we are essentially working with customers that enable true scale. So low margin, high volume business is what we need across our customer base. Um, the, the primary um, thing that we want to try and avoid is too much distribution and too many endpoints that we have to service with uh, a volume that is clearly not a return on investment, right? So from a distribution perspective, let's see, we're looking at it from a city scale. So London is full of education sites, office sites, um, sports venues, um, uh, retail outlets, restaurants, then there's also delivery that's happening across the board. So there's folks that are going into these retail outlets and whatnot. Now, if we are to, to, to secure high volumes, then you want to find where the large the largest volumes of those exist. And typically, they're going to be in concentrated areas. So you have um, uh, pockets of the city which have large urban buildings, offices that are going to be consuming large volumes, which are easily serviceable because they are high-rise, dense environments. Um, and those are those are great because from a from a from a standpoint of operational um, aspect, you're you're delivering and picking up from those large you know, um, uh, high level high rise buildings. And so our target is typically um, that kind of concentration versus 
lots of small uh, retailers that might be geographically dispersed across a larger area, which have small walk-in customers that come in and out. So from a service angle, what we look at is what are the um, what are the cost implications and then what are the revenue implications? And we kind of divert our strategy for growth around that. So we look at offices, we look at education sites. Um, sporting venues are great because they congregate very large volumes of people in one place and they're very easily managed. Um, and then retail works better where it is delivery that might be going directly to corporate offices, for example, versus delivery to end uh, you know, consumers, which will be in small volumes, and that doesn't justify. Uh, it certainly it doesn't cover um, the cost for collection. So, so strategically, we are a B two B provider. Naturally, we sell um, into those into those uh, segments as described. So, Sophia, I guess I'm curious why delivery at all, because we've talked to some other players in this space, and oh, yeah. they're they're starting yes. with food service, you know, in the restaurant context specifically. Um, yeah. and it seems like to me, delivery is a big, big jump up in difficulty from that. So, Absolutely. you know, why, why, why <laughs> tackle that? I mean, why, why tackle that at all, right? <laughs> why tackle that at all? Right. I mean, it's uh, from an operational perspective, it's, uh, it's a crazy concept. I mean, we know that just uh, food delivery platforms, most of them have not reached profitability and they're in their maybe 15th year of maturity at this point, right? So I think Q4 reports from Just Eat is that, oh, we finally reached profitability. So that's a very long time uh, to take to reach profitability. So we know that um, just on, you know, servicing food delivery isn't making money. Then you add the complexity of returnable packaging on top of that. And that's reverse logistics. You've got to go and collect that as well. So it's not even one way delivering, it's collecting. Um, it's incredibly complex. It's just that the market is huge. <laughs> and so what is driving the excitement is more coming from opportunistic investors or VCs who are looking at that thinking, oh, this could be an incredible opportunity. Why have you not tackled this? Um, and the learning behind that from our perspective is, well, yeah, it's a great opportunity if someone's willing to pay for the collection piece because you can streamline the delivery piece, work with a delivery platform, do the integrations, track the packaging against a customer, and you can get the packaging there but the customer is not willing for someone to collect it. And they're also really not willing to take that piece of packaging anywhere because you're asking them to do a bit of work. So you kind of come into this. But of course, you know, I mean, you could say the same thing as why is there, why was there excitement for five minute deliveries, seven minute deliveries, 15 minute deliveries? You know, ultimately, these are business models that on the surface of it sound exciting show immense opportunity, but the reality on the ground is you just can't make the economics work. Um, so, you know, they, I've been in many investor calls where they're like, you know, if you could prove that you could crack this, I would give you 20 million. And you're just like, I will not be alive as a business um, in either of those environments where I took your 20 million because I know it wouldn't work um, uh, and it won't work economically. Um, and also this entire idea of me setting this company up isn't to fulfill 
um, or answer on whether it will or won't work. It's to make it work. And if I'm genuinely asking myself to do this every day in, day out, I'm not going to knowingly do something that I know doesn't work. <laughs> like it's irrational, right? So, so of course, these are never the words that actually leave my, that escape my mouth when I'm having these conversations. It's more like, just like, you know, sure. Okay. Yeah. Let me get, let's get back to you. Uh, so, so those are the conversations. So why are they really excited about delivery? Well, uh, I would say that most reuse uh, founders know um, that this isn't the way that it would scale. Um, there are certain arguments to play that it's, it's a good way to build a brand. It's a good way to build visibility, to get your product into multiple restaurants because consumers will see it and know it. Um, I, we've done, been there, done that. We've launched in King's Cross. You might've seen from some press stuff on our website with Just Eat and a bunch of retail outlets. And I say King's Cross because it was in partnership with Argent who owned King's Cross. So we, you know, we married up lots of public and private sector, Canon Council, et cetera. And what we realized is that ultimately the people who drive it are going to be the, the actual hosts, the restaurants themselves. And if your product is not going through that location at volume, Ultimately, it's not actually building the brand. It's just another name that you add to your website or another name that you add to your app that, ah, oh, this person isn't, this, this, this restaurant is another endpoint where you can grab our product. Um, and then because it's so low volume, the engagement isn't there. So when a customer does walk in, you really got to like shake them their memory core and say, hey, do you offer Club Zero? And for a minute, they'll be like, who, what, how? Oh, yeah, we do. Yeah, would you like that? <laughs> Let me, you know, let me go dust it off from wherever it is. Um, and this isn't just Club Zero's reality. This is a reality across the board. So if you look at Starbucks data for the reuse program that they have established across in the U.S., um, they've got 1.2% uptake. And this is what I mean. That is low uptake. We get 1% uptake and we have customers, you know, say to us, why is it so low? And I'm just like, hey, listen. Are you still providing them an option for disposable packaging? Well, there's your answer. I mean, why are you asking me why, why is it so low? It's dead easy to do use disposable packaging. I don't have to do anything. I just walk out with this thing and I chuck it away. Um, that sounds a lot easier than either downloading an app or paying a deposit and returning it back to a cafe. You know, I'm... I do empathize with users too, by the way. I do have this ability <laughs> sure, yeah. to put myself in their shoes. And I'm just like, this is a bit ridiculous. Of course, there's 1%. Those are probably, I don't know, the sustainability, zero waste uh, enthusiasts who um, are really excited about it. And maybe you could, you know, budge that up to 2 or 3% if you have very, very motivated front of house uh, baristas and other service um, employees, but really it's not going to move. And so... I think a lot of founders do the retail play because it just looks good. It it feels like you're making progress, but it's not a real metric yeah. because the volumes are not. So, but even even within the sort of corporate or or event, you know, sporting arenas and things uh, setting that you're doing, you 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 do have to. Uh, it, there, there's got to be some consumer behavior change yeah. involved, right? Yeah. And how do you you know think about motivating that and getting those. Yeah you know, rowdy football fans to put their cups back in the bin or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's easier because when you come into a contained environment, you feel like there's certain rules um, that are at play versus when you're just walking down the high street and you're grabbing something, right? Like, um, 
so so we did we rolled out at Wimbledon Games last summer with um, in collaboration with Barclays sponsor and what's super fun is that in that environment they've got lots of activation so they've got of course all the cafes with reusable um, packaging for beverages um, and they've got 60 outlets by the way so it's quite a large operation um, on top of that you've got then the um, audio um, that is you know explaining to people constantly there you know speakers that are saying hey please return your re returnable cup to this point or that point so it can be collected there are multiple points that are activating this sort of behavior and it's easy because it's a contained space and people understand what they have to do um, so in many ways it's a it's a controlled environment and and when people are you know told to I don't know um, enter, grab something, they, they just follow the rules a lot easily than they do when they're on a high street and sort of start to question everything. Why am I doing this? What for? Etc. So um, the other aspect to think about as well is that when you are at a sporting event, you're really going there to enjoy the game. You're not really thinking about sustainability per se. You're really there for one key thing and it's to, it's to observe, watch a game or a gig or whatever. So again, the interaction needs to be super easy and fast. Um, the collection of the cups, um, typically we advise a deposit model in those contexts. We would never say go down with an app because we know that that would hold up a queue and it just doesn't work. So the model changes and shifts based on where you are in those four key segments I described. At events, it's deposit in universities because you're a repeat customer. It's tech, it's app, and it sits in your wallet. In fact, you don't even have to use the app. Um, so I think in some contexts uh, it works much better than in others just because we are socially mobilized to behave in a certain way. Uh, for me, uh, one thing that stood out from the conversation we have had so far was uh, the talk about collection. Um, and that's one thing I wanted to ask you, right? So uh, at least with packages, with like, you know, normal delivery parcel, if you will. Uh, at least in India, I noticed that if I order something from Amazon, for example, and I don't like the product, I can just put it back in the same box and a, and a, and a guy can come and collect it the next day. But in the Netherlands, it's so different because if I want to return something, then I have to go to a collection point and I have to have my own package and I have to tape it again and I need to, you know, stick another barcode on it and take it. And that's where I think the convenience aspect comes in, as you mentioned, right? Convenience is going to be a big part. And that's why people choose the disposable packaging because it's convenient to throw something than to go through this process. Uh, how are you seeing restaurants or, you know, businesses like Just Eat get on board with the idea of having to go and collect a reusable package from a consumer to make it more convenient for the consumer? Or do you see the trend going towards consumers having to do all the work? As it as is the case right now. Well, I mean, it's 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 on two levels. So the Justy partnership is really delivering to um, corporate clients. So I should add that we have thirty restaurants um, uh, that service um, customers' uh, orders, and these are coming from corporate uh, corporate offices. They're not end consumer homes, for example. Um, so it is the B2B side of the Just Eat model. It's not the B2C side. And in that way, what's uh, what's super easy, we've done a bunch of integration. So it's easy to track against the ID of whoever is ordering and it's bulk. So it's anywhere between 20 to 600 um, um, items of food. So hence items of packaging. So our you know, order would be the equivalent. 
Um, we organize a collection. So it's part of the SLA that once a packaging is used on the same day, we organize collections. So between four and six, just to give you an idea. Um, and that way the packaging isn't sitting around. They, they finish, they wrap up, they uh, put them back into um, one of our carriers and we collect from the loading bay and that's done. So it's, it's quite a nice clean system for, for, for corporate offices because they are looking for a zero waste solution that's, again, super easy and fast and convenient. And part of that is that the packaging doesn't stick around and use up space or get in the way. It's just in and out. Um, and so they are willing to cover for the collection fee as an add-on. So part of uh, how they will perceive the zero waste offer is I order as always, and I will, um, on top, I will, I will be happy to cover the cost of the collection. The collection fee is less than twenty pounds. So you know, typically that's that's acceptable to a corporate. Now, if we were to translate that into B two C environment, that would look very different. Um, also, it'd be very complex for us to coordinate because instead of like maybe you know a um, hundred or so endpoints, you end up with a thousand endpoints you have to collect from, and that's just a whole ball game that we wouldn't necessarily want to get into. Then you'd have to set up a logistics company just to do that. And that's that's that then moves us out of our core area, which is we're a returnable packaging company. Um, and we want to try and just stick to the packaging piece um, and manage the, the collections in a slightly more consolidated way. So I, I have a sort of question on this. You know, one of the big challenges yeah. with reusable packaging is loss, right? If you are trying to have a sustainable benefit, you need to keep that package in service for a long time, because if you're losing one package every time you do a delivery, you know you're going to end up being worse for the environment ultimately than um, than you know your your single use packaging. So, uh, sort of two questions on this front. One, an office is still a pretty uncontrolled environment relative to like the footprint of a, a restaurant. So, how are you thinking about loss from you know a user experience perspective? And then also from a design perspective, I feel like this is really important. Like the packaging itself, you know, if you have like a, a clamshell that breaks, it can only clip together so many times, right? Before it uh, cracks, the plastic cracks. Like there's so many ways, and we've kind of touched on this in some of our previous interviews. There's like a million ways for packaging to fail um, as it's being reused. So I guess I'm curious, because, you know, your background as an architect and your sort of design perspective, I'm sure you must have some thoughts on, you know, how how are you designing this packaging to make sure it's lasting as long as possible, and and also making sure that people are treating it the right way. Totally, and this is the easy bit. Um, the 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 logistics and all of that bit is a hard bit. This is the easy bit for us because of the DNA of the team, right? So we everything that we design, we design in house. So we're not purchasing um, third party products, which a lot of other reuse companies do. They, they they sort of find suppliers and they'll purchase it. And typically those products are not really returnable packaging. They are reusable packaging. If you're wondering, okay, Sergio, you're being really specific here. It's <laughs> a reusable packaging item. It's something that you own, that you keep, that is domestically designed. Mm-hmm. Returnable packaging is something that you don't own that is massively stackable, that optimizes its performance next to disposable packaging. It's lightweight. Um, it clicks, you know, up to the performance levels that you need. 
Um, it can be washed and redistributed very easily across the supply chain at, you know, through large commercial systems, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't trap water. You know, I could go on and on. The, the list of requirements is very different from a specification perspective for returnable packaging versus reusable. So a lot of other design, uh, sorry, reuse companies are not designing it in-house. They're purchasing it. We had, um, you know, we had, when we had an initial look at this, we thought, okay, right. So uh, we've got to first build a brief. What is the brief for our packaging? Okay, this is the brief. Our brief for our products is design things that people will like and return versus love and keep. And the reason how we came up or the reasoning behind that brief was we almost have to build the standards and create products that are ubiquitous and everyday so that they're so boring and mundane to look at, but they are nice. But they're not things that you want to steal and show to your friends, right? So think of um, products and services that are shared, i.e. shared bikes. They get you from A to B. They're very clunky. They're not very easy to drive, but they just about work. They don't have great turning circles. They can break um, eventually. But you're not going to steal one, put it in your garage and invite your friend to look at it, right? It's not. That's not what it's for. So. So designing things that you like versus things that you um, uh, that you won't um, that you won't keep is really important, and that's that's our design, you know, sort of philosophy. So once we establish that, we then also has to had to establish, um, you know, what are the what are the uh, you know what are the durability requirements of this? How thick should it be? Considering that we will lose anywhere, we know this, we will lose anywhere between two to five percent of this over its life cycle. Um, and if we were to lose those amounts, um, you know, do, we should really design it for the minimum. Now, our products are designed for 250 uses, um, and they are good for 250 minimum uses. So the click fit, everything that you are describing in terms of uh, from a manufacturing standard is already set up, and we stress test our product over its use cycles, and the factory does all the durability testing before it says, yeah, this is good to go now for mass production. So, so from our standpoint, we don't deliver anything that can't be up to 250 uses minimum. Um, and then we release those products into the world. As a uh, avid user of the uh, city bike, bike share in, in New York, I can confirm I've never had the desire to steal one of those bikes. <laughs> no, exactly. Right? Like, but they, but they do the job, um, and yep. you know, designing things that you like, ver uh, and you know, versus love and keep is, um, is really important. And so, it, from a designer perspective, it's really hard to do that because your your first thing is to make it really beautiful. That's the first thing you want to do. Like you want to make it really exciting, really beautiful. So we kind of try to never quite get there. <laughs> like, we'll get there. Like try and like yeah. take it a notch down. Um, so that's that's the design brief, and then we we stick. We have to stick by that brief and stay true to it. Maybe just one last question about the uh, you know what you see as or do you do you plan on or or push for or or look for policy drivers in this in, in this space for encouraging of reuse of reusable plastic you see that as being one of the one of the sort of tailwinds or, or drivers for this business absolutely listen uh policies we know are i mean i've been in this too long i feel like i'm zeitgeist because 2015 you know when we when i first came up with this and pitched it to the great london authority 
um, to where we are now, where returnable packaging has become mandated and there's certain targets at, you know, packaging and packaging waste um, resolution level. This is European Commission. Now they are in policy. So, so you know, this is this is a massive, massive development and transformation. If you say to me, would you, you would you bank on policy? The answer is no. You never should because it can be a revolving door. They can take something um, away yeah. after issuing it. We've seen many cities do this: Amsterdam and a number of other jurisdictions where. Um, you know, reuse companies pegged themselves to policy change and were like, this is it, went into those markets. And then six months later, um, you know, the policy changed. So the, the straight up answer is never, ever depend on policies alone. Yes, they are a massive tailwind. Um, it's great to have them in your favor. Um, only if they are actually implemented and adhered and only if they are, you know, specific fines that are imposed on those that do not adhere. Because then you start to see real change. But we know that, you know, businesses just do not move out of the goodness of their heart because they they simply don't want to increase costs. Um, And so the way that we do it is how do you show savings? How do you, um, you know, provide enough evidence for a brand to understand that they're saving on waste? They are um, by switching to returnable packaging and et cetera, et cetera. So, there in the bottom line is is the real magic. And of course, policy, once implemented, um, just forces their hand a bit more. So it's a value add, but it shouldn't be something that you, you know, you, you hang your coat on, certainly. All right. Well, it's, uh, it's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed uh, getting awesome. the chance to uh, yeah pick your, pick your brain about this. And uh, we'll definitely be continuing to follow the space and follow Club Zero's progress. And uh hopefully have a chance to connect again, but thanks very much for, uh, for joining us today. And, uh, yeah, we appreciate the time. Love it. Nice to see you guys. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research, the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast on Apple music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out www.luxresearchinc.com slash blog for all of the latest news, opinions, and articles.